This is the Sooner Schooner Show, a proud member of the Heartland College Sports Podcast Network. I'm Eric G. from 97.1, the sports animal in Tulsa. Coming up on this week's episode, Chip Brown from Horns 24-7 joins us to talk about the SEC spring meetings and whether it's better for the Southeastern Conference, and in particular OU and Texas, to have an eight-game or a nine-game conference schedule. We'll also talk about a legacy that OU is recruiting out of Washington, Oklahoma, and ESPN rated the top 75 quarterbacks since the turn of the century. We'll tell you where all of OU's Heisman winners ranked, and I will make a case that Landry Jones should be in the top five, or at least OU fans need to be more appreciative of him. So make sure you stick around for that, and we'll see if I do a good enough job of pleading Landry's case. Please don't forget, give us a a review. Uh, We love constructive criticism here on the Heartland College Sports Podcast Network, and especially here at the Sooner Schooner Show, because we want to know how much better we can make this show for you. So a review would be great. Also, if you could give us five stars, that certainly helps us get our product elevated and get our content out to more people. Obviously, great, greatly appreciated, but this isn't just a one-way street. If you rate us five stars, if you write a review, and you take a screenshot of that and send it to Pete Mundo at heartlandcollegesports.com, Pete's going to hook you up with a Heartland College Sports Koozie. Yes, that's right. You get the koozie for those days at the pool, for those days on the boat at the lake, or just sitting around the house like I will, uh, drinking beer, but showing everyone you've got great taste in podcasts, and you also know where to get the finer college sports content on the internet. Let's rock into it and talk about what's coming up here in a few days, and that is the SEC conference meeting or the annual SEC spring conference meeting where many things will be discussed, but the only thing that really pertains to you is whether or not the Southeastern Conference is going to have a nine-game or an eight-game conference schedule. Will OU have three regular conference opponents and then rotate six every couple of years, or will they have one conference opponent and rotate seven every couple of years or every year? A lot has to be decided on that. I am for, personally, the nine-game conference schedule. I would love to see OU play Texas every year, which we know that's going to happen. OU's going to play Texas every year. That's a given. If you do a nine-game conference schedule, who are the other two opponents? I've advocated for Arkansas and Missouri. I have seen Missouri and Mississippi State. You, a lot of you want Florida. And we've seen uh, Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated uh, had Florida as one of the opponents. It was it was Texas, Missouri, Florida as OU's opponents. Uh, one of the reasons I have had a hard time wrapping my head or getting around the idea of Florida is it's just that would Florida want to play Georgia, OU, and Tennessee in the same year? Because we know Florida will play Georgia. They're not going to give. They're not going to give up that rivalry. Just like the SEC is not going to give up OU Texas. It makes too much sense. You've got the neutral field. Whether they're calling it the world's largest outdoor cocktail party or not, it doesn't matter. That's what it is. It's a party atmosphere. People in Athens and Gainesville love to meet up in Jacksonville for a hell of a good time. Uh, although it should be noted that for a couple of years, whenever there is work being done on 
Altel Stadium or whatever it is in Jacksonville, that game will move to on-campus sites. But we know they're going to have that. It's hard for me to see Florida not playing Tennessee every year because of the rivalry that became when Peyton Manning was was at Tennessee. And look, it was a rivalry long before that, but it really got put on 11 when both Peyton Manning and Steve Spurrier were there. And remember Steve Spurrier's line, you know, you can't spill citrus without UT. So it just feels right for Florida to play Tennessee and Georgia every year. And now you're going to add OU to that mix. That's three really tough games. I mean, that's not adding a Vanderbilt. It's not adding a South Carolina or an Arkansas or any of the mid-tier to lower-tier SEC teams. You're talking about if OU does everything right, you having to play three of the top-tier schools in the Southeastern Conference every year, provided Tennessee stays where they are under Josh Heupel and OU gets better under, under Brent Venables. That's not – no Florida coach is beating down their door to play that. So there's a lot of lobbying and a lot of politicking going on, that, which will go a long way in deciding who these opponents are. I, I do like the idea of playing Florida. In fact, I love the idea of having a schedule of Texas because it's Texas, and we need the annual Texas game because it's the most unique rivalry, if not the best rivalry in all of college football. Missouri, which probably doesn't do you a whole lot of an excitement, but for me at least it's a tie to the Big 8. And Florida, from a recruiting standpoint, one, Florida's a credible opponent, a very credible opponent. So Florida's a credible opponent, and from a recruiting standpoint, you're in the state of Florida every year, and with OU recruiting nationally and wanting to delve into that part of the country even more than what they already are, it feels like a pretty much a win-win situation, and we would obviously be a lot more excited about OU coming to Norman every year and spending our money on that than we would Mississippi State coming to OU every other year, and that's where the cash flow is going. It'll be what it will be, but count me in the group with you that, that want Florida at this point. I am there. I am all in on the Florida thing. But what about our SEC moving partner, Texas? Where do they stand on all this? Do they want a seven-game or do they want an eight-game schedule or do they want a nine-game conference schedule? And for more on that, here is Chip Brown from Horns 24-7. Well, I think anything short of the 3-6 model is a, is a failure. Um, you know, the nine-game conference schedule uh, gives you the best games. It gives the TV partners the best uh you know, games to put on television. It's the best model for fans. It protects, uh, certainly in Texas's case, it protects three rivalries with Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Texas A&M. You go with the eight-game conference schedule, the 1-7 model, where you only have one annual opponent um, that would only protect Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, and Texas and Texas A&M talk about each other in their fight songs and have been 100-year rivals. So, you know, it's clear the SEC wants ESPN to pay more for that additional conference game, and that appears to be the holdup that has kept this thing from getting ironed out a year ago. Um, that and the fact that Nick Saban's not crazy about his, you know, three annual opponents being Auburn, Tennessee, and LSU – uh, with Tennessee improving and Georgia's being Auburn, Florida, and Kentucky. Um, but we know strength of program is cyclical, uh, but it's 
it's been an interesting, um, you know, it's been an interesting uh, process watching how this has unfolded. But if if we come away from the SEC meetings in in Destin later this um, or next week, um, without that nine game conference schedule, I think it's a failure. With Greg Sinking knowing the entire world is watching them next week. It feels like it's inevitable that the nine-game conference schedule is going to get done, even if it means bending to Nick Saban's will. Remember what I said, a lot of politicking is going to be done to get these matchups and to get the SEC the most favorable deal they can get. You know, Especially if ESPN wants to pay for that extra game, that's when you go over Nick Saban's head, you're talking to athletic directors, presidents, board of regents, and you just try and get him to agree to it. Because if he's going to be in the stick of the stick in the mud, he's got enough stroke with everybody around the conference that he can make things a real pain in the butt for everyone. But you throw money in front of these athletic directors and more importantly, these presidents, and they can't help but gobble that up and say, okay, we'll do a nine-game schedule. Nick will, Nick will just have to live with it. And in order to get Saban to agree to this, Alabama's not going to play LSU, Auburn, and Tennessee every year. That's not going to happen. Tennessee will be off the schedule for sure. LSU will probably be off the schedule for sure. And you're going to look at Alabama get something extremely favorable where Auburn is their toughest game, and then maybe they play Mississippi State every single year, and then maybe you throw them a bone from over in the east, and it's Kentucky. Ooh, yay, Kentucky, you're the sacrificial lamb because we had to get this deal done for money, and now you go get fed to Alabama every year. I can see something like that. And yeah, I just kind of pulled Kentucky out of the air on that one, but you know Nick Saban and Alabama are going to get a Vanderbilt, a Kentucky, a South Carolina. They're going to get one of those lower-rung schools. Hell, they may even get Missouri on their schedule. In order for this to get done, because it's all about greasing the wheels, and to get that, and here's why the nine-game schedule is so important to you, okay? One, better matchups for us to spend our money on a Norman. We've already established that. But two, with the 12-team college playoff coming up and six conference champions guaranteed to get in, the six highest-ranked conference champions guaranteed to get in, if you are not in the conference championship game or you are not a conference champion, you need something to show the committee. And a nine-game SEC conference schedule or a nine-game schedule in the toughest conference in America goes a long way for that selection committee deciding, yeah, we want you over them. So root for the nine-game conference schedule because it certainly helps OU's playoff chances by playing a much tougher schedule. I'm, I'm including this part um, in the podcast this week. Because we did, we had Chip on our uh, radio show on 97.1 The Sports Animal earlier, and um, I wanted to know about the Texas excitement level, the excitement level for Texas going into the SEC and how comparable it was to OU. And tell me if this sounds familiar at all. Well, I think there's sort of this, uh, I think we're excited reaction. Um, you know, the biggest part of that was Texas, needing to be competitive. And I think that gets sorted out this year. Um, you know, there's a lot of excitement. Las Vegas has, I think, Texas and Oklahoma both at nine and a half 
as the over-under win total, which is uh, a big uh, compliment to Brent Venables getting that uh, defense and, and you know his program going in year two. Uh, but Texas, with 10 starters back on offense and you know experienced leadership at every position on defense, uh, this you know this is seen as a team that should absolutely be in the Big 12 title game and and you know win 10 games. If you if you're in that situation, then I think Texas fans feel good about going to the SEC, especially with the expanded playoffs uh, going from four to 12 in 2024, which allows for a little bigger margin for error, maybe for some more multiple lost teams to get into the playoff. Um, So I know that fans are excited about the improved schedule and better games and, um, you know, being a part of what's considered the preeminent um, college football league. It does feel a little awkward to think that both OU and Texas fans might feel the same way going into the year. I mean, both are expecting to go to the Big 12 championship. Both know it's the most critical year in their athletic department's history. You can win eight or nine games at both schools and probably still keep your job as long as those three and or four losses are close. And it looks like the arrow's pointing up. But anything, anything looks like it's a little off kilter for you to go to the SEC and how unsurprising would it be to see coaching changes in Austin and in Norman before that move gets made wouldn't be all that shocking at all especially in Austin because you got to remember about the the difference between the Texas and OU job is this if you win a national championship at OU you can have a subpar year the next year now the year after that you better be back up to 10 11 wins and competing for a national championship again If you're at Texas, you win a national championship and have a subpar year the next year, they're looking to fire you. It and Auburn are the two scariest jobs to have as a head coach because you're never safe. At at, at no point can you ever relax. You are always on the hot seat. Even when they tell you you're not, you're there. So for Steve Sarkeesian, nine games will probably get you to the Southeastern Conference and you'll be fine for at least another year there. But if OU comes back and hammers you 49 to nothing and you get beat by whoever else is on your schedule, and I haven't looked at the Texas schedule, but you get beat in some convincing fashions up and down your schedule, even though it's only three losses, that might be enough of an alarm to send Crystal Conde to go out and hire Urban Meyer. And I really believe that's the first place Texas will look because I believe Urban, Urban Meyer is sitting up Steve Sarkeesian with his comments about how Texas has the best roster in college football. Congratulations to Cooper Alexander, the son of Stephen Alexander, former OU tight end Stephen Alexander, on receiving a scholarship offer from OU. Kid can play. Kid can flat out play, and he's big, big wide receiver. Six foot, 225 pounds. Um, What I really like about him, and normally I don't pay too much attention to this stuff, is the fact that um, he's got a ton of offers right now. Um, Colorado, Dion's looking at him. Iowa State, not a big surprise there. Um, Pitt, but you've also got offers from Tulsa, Stanford, and Duke, which are three of the hardest academic institutions you've got in the NCAA. So it tells me the kid is smart. 
One thing that has to be discussed, though, when you're going after a legacy, when you're recruiting a legacy, first and foremost, if you have the opportunity and you're a head coach to recruit a legacy, do so. If for no other reason to make the father happy, especially if the father's really big involved in the alumni group and the father actually has the the ear of board of regents, athletic directors, people within the university, if he was really liked as a player, even if his kid is not that good, you still want him to know that you care about him enough to make sure that his kid's college is taken care of. And if you get that kid on campus, and you first of all, if, if the kid is like this, like Cooper Alexander, you don't want to miss out on a great player because you're afraid of how things can get weird when you recruit a legacy. No, you need to go out and get that guy. And not only do you need to recruit him, you need to land him because it's going to look real bad on you as a coach if you don't get a legacy, if you don't get that legacy. It's going to look bad because it's like, well, what did you do? How did how did you tick off the dad so much? Why didn't the dad help you out? Because they're always going to think that inside the house, they can do a little bit more pushing, whether that's true or not is up for debate. But you have to think that this kid has wanted to play at OU his whole life. If you get them on campus and they're not as good as you think they are, that's all right. Play them anyway. This is all about key. A lot of this becomes about keeping dad happy. And I understand it can become an uncomfortable situation, but go ahead and do it for the betterment of your program. If the kid decides to transfer, especially now, there's no skin off your back unless unless he comes home and tells dad, well, he didn't treat me well. But if you're giving the kid an opportunity to play and the father has questions about why isn't he on the field more and you've said, hey, look, we've given him opportunity to play. You invite him out to practice, let him see what's going on. And then the father gets a better understanding. And if the kid doesn't want to play, and I'm not saying that this necessarily pertains to Cooper Alexander, you know, if the the kid still doesn't like his situation, then you can have that transfer happen. It'll be a lot easier. and, And everybody stays about as copacetic as they possibly can. I don't think any of that's going to be the case here. Um, this ought to be, I'm, I'm figuring that Cooper Alexander probably comes to OU and shines uh, just looking at his size. And normally I don't cover recruiting. I just thought it was a very interesting story that um, one, he's a highly recruited kid, but two, he's right down the street and his father played at OU. So yeah, you guys had, had better land him. No pressure, no, no pressure at all. And no pressure on ESPN. None at all. ESPN, you did your job. You ranked the top 75 quarterbacks since the turn of the century, and you're number one. You got it right. Baker freaking Mayfield. As a matter of fact, Kyler Murray, seventh. Sam Bradford ranked 15th. Jalen Hurts, 25. Jason White was 32nd. Landry Jones, 39. So OU's Heisman winners were 32. 15-7-1. 15-7-1. and one. The one that didn't win the Heisman was ranked 25, and the one who won the most games at OU 39, more on Landry Jones, coming up in just a moment. Uh, with Baker Mayfield, one of the things that helped push him over the top, uh, according to this, uh, well, it wasn't so much a survey, but yeah, it was sort, sort of a survey done by different writers. What pushed him over the top was the story. The fact that he walked on at Texas Tech, won the job there, threw for 413 yards, lost it to injury, then he upgrades. He comes to OU, takes the job from Trevor Knight, 
and then goes on to win the Heisman Trophy and become the number one overall pick. That pushed him over the top. It was the story. But I think a lot of times the story gets overshadowed by just how good Baker Mayfield is. And when I think of the quintessential Baker Mayfield moments, if we can take a stroll down memory lane here, two will always stick out because I was at both of these games covering them from a station uh, we affectionately call around here the Point Nine. So I was in Knoxville for the game where Tennessee gets out 17 to nothing. And Baker Mayfield has to bring OU back. And when I think of what Baker Mayfield did that night, a couple of moments are going to stick out. One, OU had an opportunity to tie that game late. They were in the Wildcat formation. Joe, Joe Mixon was in the Wildcat formation. Samaje Pirine scores a touchdown. Dede Westbrook gets called for the hold. And then Baker Mayfield goes back in at quarterback after the hold gets called and makes that amazing throw to Sterling Shepard in the quarter of the... I mean, he put the ball... Sterling Shepard was covered like a blanket on that play, and Mayfield put it only where Shepard could could catch it. Put it only where he could catch it as he was falling down in the end zone. And then when you come back in the overtime, and TC... Or not TCU, but Tennessee takes the lead... Baker Mayfield has to run it in to score the tying touchdown. And after that, he threw he threw another pass to Sterling Shepard. I always forget that him and Sterling Shepard had pretty good chemistry. And it's a lot of fun to just go back and watch the highlights of, of those two playing. There was that moment, the Tennessee game. Fast forward another year to 2016. I mean, and he didn't win either the he didn't win the Heisman in either of these years. Although I thought in 2016 he had his Heisman moment when OU beat Baylor in what was sort of a back-and-forth game and OU got up late, but he really put icing on the cake when he took the snap, went to his left, you know, looking for Samaj P. Ryan, who was in the backfield. I think he was looking to throw to him. Looked to his left. Baylor only had a three-man rush. Still Still the protection broke down. He rolls to his right and and hits Dimitri Flowers. I mean, that moment, that moment alone. I mean, and Baker had so many hold my beer moments. I mean, I'm, you know, it seemed like, especially in that Sugar Bowl that that they won against Auburn, there were more than a couple of hold my beer moments. But I thought those two were kind of the quintessential Baker Mayfield moments. Um, And it wasn't planting the flag at Ohio State, although he played brilliant then. It was the plays that he made. And his leadership qualities that I'll always value. All that being said, Landry Jones should have ranked higher than 39 on this list. Now, I can argue that the 38 other guys ahead of him are better quarterbacks. And one of the things I hate to do is argue on stats. But the fact of the matter is, is you threw for 16,446 yards. No quarterback in the history of college football has ever thrown for more yards than Landry Jones. None. He's also the winningest quarterback at OU. That means he has won more games than Baker Mayfield. Kyler Murray, well, okay, Kyler in his one year. Uh, He's won more games than Jason White. He's won more games than Sam Bradford, than Steve Davis, than Jack Mildred, than Jimmy Harris. And and, and OU has had, for as as much as we like to think of OU as a running back school, Pre-Bob Stoops era, 
OU's had a lot of really good quarterbacks, and Landry Jones has won more games than them. The problem with Landry is that you have that first year that he played, which OU was 8-5. and five. No one was expecting him to play, and he was sort of thrust in there when Sam Bradford got hurt at BYU, and him and Sam alternated playing that year more than a few times. But he follows that up with a 10-2 and two year and wins the conference. Then you're 10-3 and three the next couple of years, and I know the guy had a knack for throwing to the wrong jersey, and I and I always try to think of that 2012 Oklahoma State game, that 2012 Bedlam game, which was his last home game. But I forgot that he was overshadowed by the belldozer who scored the game-tying touchdown to send it into overtime. And then Brennan Clay, which I never forget, ends up scoring the game-winning touchdown during the first overtime. So it's not like Landry Jones gets a lot of credit for that at all. And I think had OU won more than one conference championship while he was there, more one, one, more than one outright, and had played for a national championship, you're probably looking at him a little differently. Um, but because he was so crapped on while he was here, I think OU fans don't actually appreciate everything that this kid went through and everything it took. And 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 think about Spencer. Think about Spencer Rattler for for a second. Rattler lost his job and ended up leaving via the transfer portal. Now, not that that was an option there for Landry Jones, but he could have transferred. He would have had to sit out a year, but he could have transferred. But he didn't. He stuck it out. He was the starter. And if you think about it. When he was there, he was the best quarterback up until uh, up until um, Baker Mayfield. You know, look, he was better than Trevor Knight. He's probably better all around quarterback than than Blake Bell. Although Blake was Blake was kind of a stud, and we all love the Belldozer. But I never felt like Landry Jones gets gets as much credit as he deserves. And part of it is is because I was working down in New Mexico when he was recruited. I love the fact that he went to my alma mater, and I just loved bragging about it because. Oh, those fans down there were ticked. Didn't like it like he was going to New Mexico anyway. And I think I wanted to see him be more successful. But when you're the winningest quarterback in OU history, you were pretty darn successful. That finishes it up for us this week. We'd like to thank you very much for listening. Please, again, rate us five stars. Write a review. Take a screenshot of that. Send it into Pete Mundo at heartlandcollegesports.com and uh, get yourself a koozie. Get yourself a Heartland College Sports koozie. That's Pete Mundo at HeartlandCollegeSports.com. Pete Mundo at HeartlandCollegeSports.com. That's the email address. May God bless you and your family. As the great Jackie Moon always says, everybody love everybody. And to quote the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Don Cornelius, love, peace, and soul.